Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Anthony Fabrizio left his hometown of Elmira, New York, in late August of 1964 to do what all the cool kids were doing those days. Okay, not kid kids. Fabrizio was a 58-year-old printer for his town's local newspaper, the Elmira Star-Gazette. But he was indeed taking part in an activity that was suddenly all the rage in New England and beyond. Out-of-staters were flocking to New Hampshire, not to visit beautiful Mount Washington or the Storyland theme park, but to gamble. Fabrizio drove New Hampshire Route 9 into Keene, where he parked his car outside a liquor store and went inside. A few hours later, cops were waiting for him as he re-entered New York State. They asked him what he'd been up to. Fabrizio lied. I just went for a day trip to get some fresh air, he said. Police suspected that was bull and searched his car to prove it. They found what they were looking for. Inside the vehicle were 75 slips of paper slyly called acknowledgments that showed Fabrizio had bought a slew of lottery tickets for dozens of other people. In today's world, this might not seem like a crime at all because it wouldn't be. Unlike a lot of the stories we cover here on Crimes of the Centuries, Fabrizio didn't have a body in his trunk. He'd simply bought some lottery tickets, and he hadn't even bought them from some mafia bookie. These were New Hampshire government-sanctioned tickets, the very first of their kind in the modern era. Buying the tickets was perfectly legal, but those slips of paper he brought home with him? Well, those weren't. People do not remember what a national sensation this was and a national scandal at the same time. That's author and podcaster Kevin Flynn, who wrote a book about this case called American Sweepstakes. Why I really like this story is because, like all the other crimes of the century that you cover, it's a story lost to history. So let's dust it off, shall we? Before we delve into this case, allow Flynn to state the following. It's bloodless. It's a bloodless crime. Because sometimes I need to not write about murder. And also because not every crime of the century involves a corpse. This is one of those crimes. To understand its importance, though, we need to start where we always do, which is at the beginning. In this case, that means going back a really long way. Lotteries go back, I mean, all the way to the Bible, right? It was considered God's will to draw lots. This is how we got the 13th apostle. Do you remember there was that one apostle did a bad thing to Jesus and then he like exited the scene? Well, the apostles replaced him. There were two candidates and they drew lots and that was apparently God's will. So the idea that the fates could decide things is uh, is sort of ingrained in a human culture. Lotteries as money-making ventures date back almost as far. Take this example from the infographics groups. 
1620, the Italian city of Genoa would select its government through a random process. Elections started when 90 suitable candidates would submit their names and five were drawn. These five would become city councillors. Businessmen decided to have a little fun with this drawing, so they took bets on which candidates' names would be drawn. Whoever predicted correctly got a prize. Eventually, the names were replaced by numbers, from 1 to 90. This was the start of the 5 out of 90 lottery. It was a popular venture. It grew in Italy and then spread across Europe. As lotteries collected more money, governments took over their operations. Because of course they did. State leaders would use the cash to fill their coffers or finance their armies. Flynn, the author and podcaster, wrote a Mental Floss article in 2016 titled Nine Things You Didn't Know Were Paid For by a Lottery. Among the things, the Great Wall of China, the Roads to Rome, philosopher Voltaire's education, buildings and dorms at the New World's Ivy League colleges, the Continental Army, even the Jamestown settlement. So you could say that, you know, the U.S. is literally the child of lotteries. But in the modern era, sanctioned lotteries were frowned upon starting in the early 19th century. It's kind of ironic that this activity mentioned in the Bible was deemed so sinful that its biggest opposition came from those representing churches. But there's a reason for that. Lotteries, as they were run back then, were easy to corrupt. They were pretty easy to fix, or at least to steal and skim off the top, because throughout history, while governments and kings and parliaments and legislatures would approve a lottery for a certain function, the government didn't run the lotteries. It was always the third-person broker who would have their organization and would go around and sell the tickets, or essentially like raffle tickets, right? So someone would keep the counterfoil, and then, you know, the original ticket or whatever would go back to where it's going to be drawn. It was incredibly easy for these brokers to skim money off the top or to sell counterfeit tickets or even sell tickets to drawings that had already happened. And people thought, well, you know, there are dignified ways of gambling. There's poker, there's cockfighting, there's duels, but lotteries, you know, let's clutch our 18th century pearls because this was this was going to create degenerates of the general public. Instead of figuring out ways to keep lotteries on the level, it seemed easier to accept that they'd always be corrupted and thus shouldn't be used as a legitimate means of fundraising. Never mind that the local church was still hosting regular raffles. Those were on the up and up, but everyone else's raffles were sinful. In America, anyway. Come 1930, Ireland saw things differently. That's the year the Irish government sanctioned the Irish sweepstakes. There had been versions of this prior to 1930, to be clear, but those were run on smaller scales. The first mention of the Irish sweepstakes I found in newspaper archives ran in 1920, and that mention was under the headline, Irish Sweepstakes Banned. At that time, the money raised was to help parishes. A decade later, the thing was government-authorized and meant to benefit Irish hospitals. Now, like Flint said, the numbers game idea was considered uncouth. The mob ran numbers games. To keep a sense of respectability on this gambling venture, the Irish sweepstakes was designed to be tied to a horse race from forgotten Ireland. There are three sweepstakes a year, 
and as the draw approaches, the daily deliveries of letters here would make a depressing sight for the anti-gambling league. In recent draws, more than six million tickets at one pound a time have gone into the famous revolving drum. Eighteen million pounds a year. Let's see now, what's the drill? Release the brake, press the button, and off she goes. People would buy tickets, the stubs of which were put in a barrel. Names from the barrel were pulled and matched with the name of a horse. So that was sort of step one of the thing. Once you cleared that first hurdle and learned that your name had been pulled, period, you still had the race to look forward to. The people who had been randomly matched with a horse that happened to win won the biggest prize. Second place got the second biggest purse, and so forth. The Irish sweeps were hugely popular, and not just in Ireland. What are we going to do with the money? First thing I want to do is go home, see our folks, and then come back to Washington and buy a nice little home for ourselves. That's the idea. You and I have the same idea. People in America played all the time, and when they won, they made the news. What was the name of the horse that won for you? Gulfstream was the name of the horse, and I'd like to have a picture of him. I'd certainly like to kiss the horse and the jockey, too. Very few people were so lucky. That's the whole point, after all. Millions of dreams were dashed, as this 1962 newscast highlights. This is going to be a sobering moment. Six million tickets that weren't drawn. Can't blame me. Crammed to the very top. Six million black reality Mondays. Six million dead hopes. Would you like to see a handful? Well, you can't. Official eyes are watching. Here, not even dead counterfiles may be touched by an unauthorized hand. Now, to be clear, the Irish sweeps was legal in Ireland, but not in America. You weren't supposed to play it. But people did all the time. In fact, U.S. citizens were among the most frequent customers. You might wonder how that's possible. Well, a reporter asked that of an Irish sweeps representative who answered, The tickets leave here. Where they go from there, I don't know. I have somebody else. I hand them over to somebody. That's their business. That was Patrick McGraw speaking. He ran the daily operations of a company called Hospitals Trust Limited, which ran the sweeps. The company president was Patrick's father, Joe McGraw, who had previously been the Minister of Trade and Commerce. So even though this was a government-sanctioned lottery, it wasn't government-run. The tickets had to be smuggled out of the U.S. into Ireland. And one of the ways that they would get the stuff into the country is that they would pack the stuff in with all the rifles that the IRA was smuggling in because a lot of the money that was being skimmed from the Irish sweepstakes was funding the IRA. Turns out, with private business at the helm, lotteries such as this one were vulnerable to corruption, though we wouldn't know the full extent of that shadiness until the 1970s, which was long after New Hampshire used the Irish sweeps as the blueprint for America's first state-sanctioned lottery. Lotteries are ubiquitous. It's hard for me to imagine a town, city, or state without them. But what was it about New Hampshire specifically that landed it at the American forefront of all of this? Well, to grasp that, you have to know a little bit about the state and its personality, for lack of a better word. Live free or die is our state motto. 
Flynn says our state motto because he's a longtime New Hampshire resident. He lives there with Rebecca Lavoie, with whom he co-hosts the podcast Crime Writers On, and who's often his writing partner on true crime books, though American Sweepstakes was a solo venture. If you ever visit New Hampshire, you get the sense that the state motto actually means something to the people who live there. We are flinty. We are contrarian. Uh, Yankees are kind of frugal. And so one of the reasons that one of the things that makes New Hampshire different, particularly at this time, was they didn't want to be taxed. So they didn't want to have income taxes. They didn't want to have sales taxes. So popular and effective politicians took these stands. And so when it comes to now raising money, we really have to raise. How are we going to do it? As the 1900s wore on, New Hampshire was growing at a clip. In 1930, the population was 466,000. By 1950, it was 533,000. Soon after that is when a politician named Larry Pickett began advocating for a state lottery. His thinking was that people would buy these lottery tickets voluntarily in order to pay for things that the state needed, thus avoiding the need to levy a tax to pay for these needed things. Pickett was what Flynn describes as a colorful character from Keene, New Hampshire. Before entering politics, Pickett had been a vaudeville performer and apparently put that theater background to good use, first as mayor of Keene, then as a state legislator. Session after session, he proposed a state lottery to fund one thing or another. It was always a different proposal. Time and again, it was defeated. It wasn't that the idea was unpopular with residents, it generally was, but Republicans were against it and New Hampshire was super red. There had only been two Democratic governors in the state since the 1870s, and both of those two had only served single two-year terms. But then, in 1963, a Democrat named John King came along. He was the first-generation American son of an Irish shoemaker who had served in the 50s as a state legislator. He'd earned a reputation as a smart and capable guy who didn't lean too far to the left. And sure, that helped when he ran for governor, but that wasn't all he had going for him. He also had JFK. He won because Kennedy was popular and he was unexpectedly swept in. Pickett's lottery idea had come close in 1955. It had passed, but then been vetoed by the governor, killing it. And after King's election, that happened again. It passed the House and the Senate and went to King to either embrace or veto. King struggled with it, then went all in. But his position was precarious. Not only did he have political rivals just dying to watch him fail, but there was huge opposition to the lottery from pastors and religious organizations. Here's Flynn reading some editorials from back in the day. The Milwaukee Journal said it is an unhappy commentary of human nature that the citizens of New Hampshire, apparently unwilling to carry a normal tax load, are tapping into man's less noble impulses to raise money for the education of children. The outstanding danger in New Hampshire is posed by the undesirable elements that may attempt to muscle in, said the Waukegan News Sun. The Saturday Evening Post said many solid citizens are convinced that the horses in the inaugural running of the New Hampshire sweepstakes will be officially trampling New Hampshire's very morality into the dust. Local newspapers said, like, what is happening to New Hampshire's name shouldn't happen to a dog. I mean, there was some real opposition. It was very emotional. 
Governor King needed to counter this kind of press by finding some allies, and one appeared in the form of a newspaper publisher named Bill Loeb. He was sort of Roger Ailes before Roger Ailes. Loeb wrote a bunch of front-page editorials touting the idea, basically saying, look, this either works or we have to enact a sales tax. That helped sway public opinion, but Governor King had another problem. He needed to figure out how to make sure the lottery didn't get corrupted. The way the religious folks saw it, mobsters were circling the state like sharks. The lottery was about to send all of New Hampshire to hell. King needed to not let that happen. So he hired a G-man, an FBI agent out of Boston, whose job would be to oversee the operation and, most importantly, protect its integrity. His name was Ed Powers. And he was just not a regular FBI agent. For his day, he was Elliot Ness. Ed Powers was the first guy to capture two guys on the most wanted list at the same time. He also solved the uh, 1950 Brinks heist, which was the largest bank heist in the history of the U.S. up to that point. Powers was out of central casting. He had a square jaw, an open, handsome face, and an unassailable reputation. And so this was a guy who uh, was super popular, and nobody could say, oh, well, he's going to bring the mafia in. He's going to bring organized crime in. Even the newspapers and the biggest critics of the sweepstakes said, yeah, this is an excellent choice. He was media savvy, too, and not just in the gives good speeches on camera kind of way. In 1964, he appeared on a TV show called To Tell the Truth. Now, there have been a few incarnations of the show over the years, but this was during its original run on CBS between 1956 and 1968. The show premise was that four celebrities would form a panel and meet three contestants all claiming to be the same person with some interesting job. The show host, Bud Collier, would read a written affidavit provided by the person the panel was supposed to flush out. A panel, follow along if you will again while I read this story. I, Edward J. Powers, am a retired FBI agent. Last year, I was appointed executive director of the New Hampshire Sweepstakes Commission. In the first year, the state of New Hampshire hopes to raise $9 million from the sweepstakes. Four million of it will be used for state aid to public education. The New Hampshire sweepstakes is the first legal sweepstakes in the history of the United States. Signed, Edward J. Powers. Then the panel would barrage the contestants with questions, trying to figure out which two were imposters and which was the real deal. Number three, what do they do with the money in the Irish sweepstakes? Well, I guess they distribute it to the prize winners, and some of it goes to the Irish hospitals. Um, number uh, two, how many tickets do you think you're going to sell? We hope to sell... Nine million. Number one, how much is a ticket? Three dollars. Number three, can I buy a ticket if I live in New York and you live in New Hampshire? Well, you have to come to New Hampshire to buy it or have a friend buy it for you. Uh, Number two, would you mail me one, dear? (laughs) I would not. (laughs) I would not. Oh. The tickets will remain in custody. The real Ed Powers was contestant number three, but no one guessed right. I think it was because he was asked where the term sweepstakes originated, but didn't know. Will the real Edward J. Powers... Please stand up. Appearances like this are commonplace nowadays, but TV was still pretty new at this point, and that power saw the value in talking about the sweepstakes to a national audience shows he was a pretty shrewd fellow. 
He knew that a lot was riding on New Hampshire's success or its failure. Now, in that barrage of questions, the panelists posed one of the most often asked queries Powers and his colleagues would face. Can I buy lottery tickets through the mail? The number two candidate answered correctly. No, you couldn't, because that was all kinds of illegal. To understand this, you've got to back up a little bit to the 19th century and discuss the Louisiana State Lottery, which began about three years after the end of the Civil War and lasted until 1892. So the lottery that ran out of Louisiana, they had brokers going over the entire country and they would sell tickets and they would send them back to Louisiana. In fact, half of the mail in Baton Rouge was for the lottery. Only about 7% of the Louisiana Lottery Company's revenue came from within the state. This thing quickly grew to become one of the largest businesses in the entire country, with drawings held daily, monthly, and semi-annually. This thing reached into so many homes and businesses that it earned the nickname the Golden Octopus. It was just impossible to untangle this lottery operation from the state and across the country. But there were allegations of corruption. Despite the operation raking in millions of dollars, it only donated about $40,000 a year for 25 years to the Charity Hospital of New Orleans. After doling out the public's winnings, the lottery company kept the rest tax-free. The feds decided it had to be shut down, and the way they did that was by passing laws banning the sale of lottery tickets through the mail. That law was still on the books in 1964, which is why, to tell the truth, candidate number two was right when he said, no, sorry, I can't mail you a ticket. It was illegal. There were other federal laws that also threatened to impact the New Hampshire sweepstakes, though those laws were quite a bit fresher. Bobby Kennedy, who was the attorney general, his Justice Department came up with two very important laws that were targeting the mob. One was the Wire Act, which prohibited the use of like telephones for passing along illegal gambling information. And the other was the Gambling Paraphernalia Act. That latter act made it illegal to cross state lines with any gambling paraphernalia, receipts, records, tickets, anything associated with illegal gambling. It was that law that Anthony Fabrizio from the top of the episode was accused of breaking the outcome of which would have huge repercussions on whether other states would try to follow New Hampshire's lead to legalize lotteries themselves. Tickets for New Hampshire's first sweepstakes went on sale in mid-March of 1964, with Governor John King buying the ceremonial first ticket for Matt Powers at the Rockingham Park racetrack. King promised that in the unlikely event he won, he would donate it all to charity. Over the next six months, more than 1.9 million more tickets would be sold, bringing in just shy of $6 million. That's about $58 million in today's money. About one-third of that money would go to the state's educational system. As for the betting pool, six people would win $100,000, just shy of $1 million today. Another six would win $50,000. Six more would win $25,000. Holders of tickets on horses that didn't place in the money would still get between a few hundred and several thousand dollars each. The day before the big race, the Windsor Star newspaper in Ontario ran a story that said, quote, 
A lot of people, and not just the ticket holders, will be watching the results closely. Some officials in other states believe a lottery might be one answer to the troublesome question of how to finance costly spending programs without odious tax increases. If a lottery works in New Hampshire, it might be tried elsewhere. End quote. September 12, 1964, was the big day. The New Hampshire town of Salem goes down in history as the scene of the first legalized sweepstakes in the U.S. As 11 horses get away in the race that decides the winners. Coming first to the wire on the outside is Roman Brother. And as he nips nightly manner and purser in the home stretch, he makes six persons delirious with joy. The sweepstakes was heralded a huge success. We'll bet you know who the big winner was. That's right. Uncle Sam was right there in the winner's circle. But Anthony Fabrizio wasn't feeling so lucky. After buying 75 sweepstakes entries for other people just weeks before the race, he'd been pulled over and arrested at 1 in the morning by FBI agents who'd just so happened to be looking for anyone buying tickets in bulk who could serve as a test case to challenge New Hampshire's lottery's legal standing in New York. Really, he hadn't done much to stand out more in being targeted. Someone had heard he was offering to pick up tickets and called in the tip to the FBI, who was looking to make exactly this type of arrest. The official charge was interstate transportation of receipts. This wasn't a random traffic stop, to be clear. Once the FBI got the tip that Fabrizio was planning to buy tickets, they started tailing him. Six agents followed him to New Hampshire, waited for him to buy his tickets, and then followed him back, arresting him just as he crossed the city line into Elmira. Fabrizio was hardly your prototypical criminal. Born in 1912, he had started working for the local newspapers at seven years old, delivering morning editions with his older brother. He began working with the Star Gazette in 1935. According to his draft card from World War II, he stood five foot seven, weighed 173 pounds, had a ruddy complexion, black hair, and hazel eyes. He was known as an affable guy and a hard worker, the type of guy who wrote letters applauding the local high school's musical productions. Around the newsroom, he was known for wearing a visor above his black-rimmed glasses. Now, New Hampshire tried to make sure it wasn't running afoul of federal law when it created its sweepstakes. That was the thrust of Ed Power's whole job, after all. So they'd set up the system so that people had to come into New Hampshire to buy a ticket. And when they left the state, the ticket stayed in New Hampshire. The purchaser would write their name and address on the ticket, and that's how lottery officials would know whom to contact to get them their winnings. Buyers were given a little stub that lottery officials called an acknowledgement, but they insisted that stub was absolutely worthless. It wasn't a receipt. You didn't need it to claim your winnings. It was basically a souvenir and nothing more. And so they would say, if you cross lines with this piece of paper, it has no value. You do not need to hang on to the acknowledgement. You can crumple it up. You can keep it as a souvenir. It has zero value because the actual ticket that they will draw is still in New Hampshire. So this was the way they said, okay, we're not, we're not breaking the law. We're not crossing state lines. There is no value to this acknowledgement. That's what New Hampshire said. That's not what everybody else thought. It really was open to interpretation as to whether the acknowledgement was gambling paraphernalia. 
The horse race for which Fabrizio bought tickets was over in a matter of minutes, but the legal case would last years. In 1965, a U.S. district judge dismissed the case, a win for Fabrizio. Judge Harold Burke said that the acknowledgments weren't, quote, wagering paraphernalia, end quote, and thus the charges made no sense. But the federal government appealed that dismissal. In December of 1966, the Supreme Court of the United States reversed Burke's decision and ordered a new trial. It's worth noting that stories about the Fabrizio case unfolded in New York newspapers alongside stories about New York moving to create its own lottery following New Hampshire's model. Fabrizio's trial finally got underway in October of 1968, four years after he'd bought the tickets. By this point, the New Hampshire lottery had roots, and New York's was in its second year. New Jersey was about to launch one, too. Yet Fabrizio was still in limbo. On October 31st, he was acquitted by a jury. An emotional Fabrizio told reporters, four years is a long time to be on the hook. The story continues, quote, I will never buy another state lottery ticket again, Fabrizio stated fervently after the verdict was returned. He was nearly in tears, end quote. It's worth noting, though, that he softened when asked about buying one in his own home state of New York. He said he'd think about it. That's ballsy. After all, the New Hampshire lottery cost this man a lot. The 75 tickets he'd bought at $3 a pop had only come to $225, but the legal battle carried a price tag of about $2,500. That's more than $21,000 in today's money. Some New Hampshire lawmakers tried to pass a resolution to pay Fabrizio's legal fees, but their efforts failed. Fabrizio's employer, the Elmira Star Gazette, asked readers to donate to the cause, which offset the bill by about half. Fabrizio retired from his job as a printer in 1974. It's not known if he ever did buy another state lottery ticket. By the time he died in 1996, at age 84, state lotteries had been started in nearly 40 states. None were tied to horse races anymore. In fact, they'd become, and are still today, pretty much the numbers rackets that had been associated with mobsters back in the 1960s. The games that guys like Governor King and Ed Powers had taken great pains to be nothing like are exactly what the New Hampshire sweepstakes and others modeled after it eventually morphed into. Plus, there have been some new inventions and developments that no one would have envisioned 60 years ago. The invention of the scratch ticket was something that was a game changer. And eventually states, they would organize in a coalition to pool their funds for large jackpots like Mega Bucks and eventually Powerball and Mega Millions. Uh, they would come together and then then all of a sudden the prizes now were in the, the low millions and the 10 millions and then up to 100 million. Ed Powers retired from the New Hampshire Sweepstakes Commission in 1978 and is generally recognized as the father of U.S. lotteries. As Flynn wrote, quote, his example of running an honest, fair, and successful lottery with the highest degree of public integrity is the industry standard. Critics can say lotteries prey on the poor or the odds are for suckers. What they cannot say is the game is fixed and people don't actually win or that such concerns have ever been legitimate. Power's desire to give the player a fair shake still stands, end quote. Powers died in 1989 on the eve of the 25th anniversary celebration of New Hampshire's sweepstakes. 
Governor John King was the first New Hampshire Democrat to serve more than one term as governor. In fact, he served an unprecedented three two-year terms. He later was appointed to the New Hampshire Supreme Court and served as its justice until age 70. He died in a nursing home in 1996. Today, lotteries are run by 45 states plus three jurisdictions, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. If it were not for New Hampshire being successful in this one endeavor, we would not have a lottery culture, a culture where we dream that perhaps we'll all of a sudden be multimillionaires overnight. I do have this dream, for the record. I work hard and hope that that'll pay off, but I still belong to a lottery pool with co-workers from my former job at the Detroit Free Press. Shout out to the members of the Colin Rich Club. I haven't worked in Detroit for more than a decade. The only way we're suddenly going to change our station, we believe, is if we win the lottery. And so what New Hampshire gave us was not the American dream. It gave us the American daydream. To research this story, I read Kevin Flynn's very fun book, American Sweepstakes. Big thanks to him for talking to me, too. If you don't know his podcast, Crime Writers On, be sure to check it out. I also read tons of contemporary news coverage, watched charming newsreels of yore, and bought a couple of lottery tickets because why the hell not? Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>